with the police banging on the door. Open up. The choice to be in that lineup was the last choice I made as a free man. A year later, I ended up right in the system. I'm going to be one of those people who everyone in the world is going to think is a monster or suspect is a monster for the rest of my life, and I'm just going to have to come to peace with that. Somebody was able to look at my picture in a database and say that I was somewhere where I definitely wasn't. I overheard three of the jailers discussing what part they might have to play in my hanging. They had been told that two prison officers would have to participate in my execution. And I walked back inside that prison for the last time, man. All hell broke loose, man. This is Wrongful Conviction. Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom. Today we have a very special Valentine's Day edition featuring two extraordinary people, Cedric Courtney and his beautiful wife, Tina. Cedric, Tina, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. So Cedric and Tina have a very unusual and beautiful love story, which is that they met in prison. And as you're probably now spitting out your coffee listening to this, I can tell you that Cedric was wrongfully convicted of armed robbery, and he was incarcerated in Oklahoma and met Tina when she was working in the prison as a guard. Cedric Courtney was exonerated after he had already served his time in prison, 15 years. He sued Tulsa police over testimony given by a lab technician that helped to convict him. A DNA test of the evidence much later showed it was not connected to Courtney. Today, DNA is the gold standard for prosecutors and defense attorneys. The lack of it helped Courtney's attorneys get his conviction set aside. It's a great thing to see now they have a family, but I want to go back to sort of the beginning. Cedric, where were you from originally? I'm originally from Tulsa, Oklahoma. And Tina, how about you? I'm born and raised in the same place, Duncan, Oklahoma. So you start off there and you grew up. Did you have a happy childhood, Cedric? For the most part, yes. And you too? Yes. Oh, nice. So everything was going pretty good. I guess. I mean, you know, life's not easy. And I know your life wasn't easy, Cedric. But then things took a really terrible turn back in 1995. And to paint a picture, on April 6, 1995, what happened was two men with pistols and wearing ski masks kicked in the door of an apartment of a woman named Shamita Greer. And they forced her to the floor, pistol-whipped her, and duct-taped her eyes and mouth. And during the robbery, which lasted less than 10 minutes, They kicked her in the head, and she played dead, and they left with $397 in cash, four tires, and four wheel rims, right? She then went on to mistakenly identify you, and we see mistaken eyewitness identification all the time. It's the number one leading cause of wrongful convictions, but in this case, it was unusual because you actually knew her, and she thought it was you for reasons that still nobody understands, right? Right. So how did this happen? I mean, you you had an alibi, right? Yes. Well, they also said in the trial that the person who does the lab work... Carol Cox. Carol Cox is the one who does the DNA testing, and she came back and said it was inconclusive that the matching red hair did not match his red hair, which, as you cannot see, he is African-American. He is definitely does not have red hair. He is black-headed. And so they have found out now, all these years later, that she um, falsified evidence. 
Yeah, I mean, when you say that, it's so strange. And just just to paint a picture for you, Cedric is a very handsome African American man with a beard and black hair. And so it's so bizarre that there would be anything to do with any red hair. It just doesn't make any sense. Every week we have another case, and every one of them is crazy because you sit there and go, how could this happen? But in this case, it takes another level of disbelief almost or suspending disbelief because you say, okay, so she said that she identified you because one of the two guys pulled up his mask a little bit. And so maybe she saw the chin or something of the guy. And then also she claimed to be able to identify your hands, Correct. which is nuts. I mean, is there anything particularly, I mean, I'm looking at your hands and you could be a hand model. <laughs> it's a regular hands. There's nothing particularly no unique or identifying, no scars. You're not missing a finger. Right. So how would somebody possibly be able? And again, we know that in times of stress, extreme stress, people are are even less likely to be able to identify someone, even if they see their whole face, because the brain does not work like a tape recorder, even though a lot of people think that it does. Must have been very convincing at trial when you have a victim who says, I recognized him. I knew the guy. You had her testifying that she knew you and could identify you. And then you had this forensic analyst lying. Yes. Basically just lying. Yes. Let's not sugarcoat it. She completely lied and has been proven that she has lied on other cases as well and has gotten in no trouble whatsoever for falsifying evidence. Which never ceases to amaze me, Tina. I mean, how... And this is also an odd case because once I found him completely innocent, obviously all the lawsuits and everything I went through, most cases and most situations in most states, they say, okay, now we have the DNA. We're going to run it through the data bank. We want to know who actually did this. They won't run it. So they're not actually out to catch who really did this. Say their evidence, say this person has committed another crime and their DNA is in the DNA data bank. Oklahoma won't run it to find out who really robbed this person. So there's no intention on catching who really did it. It's just at the time they wanted a conviction. They They want to solve the case. Yes. And justice be damned. Mm -hmm. Cedric, let's go back to you. So all of a sudden, you find yourself in sort of like a vortex, like this, everything's going crazy. Actually, your alibi, let's talk about that, because you had a very, very strong alibi. Right. Where were you on the day of the crime at the time of the crime? The morning of the crime, I went and put flowers on my mother's grave. And after that, I went to the unemployment office and was there like three or four hours filling out paperwork for unemployment. So there were multiple people who saw you because you didn't go to your mother's grave alone, right? You went with family members. And then you were at the unemployment office. It's not like your alibi was I was out walking in the park by myself all day, which would be, okay, well, that doesn't really work, you know? I mean, and, and that could be an alibi. But, but you were at the unemployment office where dozens of people saw you. I signed in, and uh, I even received two checks, but nobody could find traces of my paperwork. So when I got out, I went to the building, and it was closed down. So I called the unemployment office head office and they said after 10 years they destroyed their records so they had no record of me receiving or even being in there that day well that but this is when you were appealing right I'm this is when i was home i went he to just wanted to, to know yeah. he just wanted to know right right, right. but, I but mean, at the time of the trial no they had no they couldn't find the evidence that he was there everything was just stacking against him i'm assuming because you weren't a wealthy guy that you were represented by a public defender 
No, I, I retained an attorney. You did? Yes. And was he competent? Was it he or she? I don't even know. He was a family attorney. He, he was and a family attorney. He had never done criminal law. Criminal felony. felony. He had never done any of that. So here's another typical situation that we find in wrongful convictions, which is that you have an attorney who is, a nice way to put it would be underqualified and vastly overmatched because you're up there, you've got a witness testifying that she knows you and can identify you, pointing at you in the courtroom, I assume. And then you've got a forensic analyst who's probably talking about her fancy degrees that she's got and all this stuff, right? And the jury would be sitting there going, Obviously, the guy did it. Like, what can you say? Do you recall? Did he do any work? Did he go to the unemployment office? Did he interview people? Did he did he interview the witness, uh, the victim? I mean, he interviewed the victim. I don't think he went to the unemployment office. If he did, he was turned down for some reason. Uh, my family went to the unemployment office. They were turned down. They wouldn't let them get any paperwork. That's bizarre. Like, why wouldn't they allow them to have your paperwork? Were you bailed out? Were you held in jail pending the trial? I held in jail pending trial. The bail, I'm assuming, was pretty high because it was a violent crime. Uh, like 120000 Right. And your family wasn't a wealthy family. No. You had no ability to post that bail. So, yeah, so you, otherwise you could have gone down there yourself and probably recognize, people would have recognized you and said, oh, yeah, there's a guy who was, yeah. So that's another big drawback. And we see that again and again where your ability to defend yourself is really badly hampered when you're stuck in jail, not only because of things like that, but also because it's much more difficult for your lawyer to visit you. And many people don't even get a visit from their lawyer when you're in jail. They have to go through the whole process. They have to go to the jail. They have to sign in. They don't make it easy for people to visit. Um, I know from going to jails myself. So yeah, the odds were totally stacked against you. You didn't have a snowball's chance (laughs) in hell in this situation. So let's go to the trial. First of all, there were two assailants, but they only caught one. They caught the wrong one. So, in fact, we know that they never caught anybody. Correct. That that was, you know, and and that these guys who were very scary guys are still out there probably victimizing other people. I mean, it's logical. It's not the type of crime that's like an isolated incident. If if you're doing that, that's probably the way you're making your living. So who knows how many other victims fell prey because of the fact that, unfortunately, the authorities didn't do their job correctly. And, again, that's being polite. So you go to trial, and the arguments are made— Jury goes out. How long did they deliberate for? Not long. It wasn't long. No. No, open and shut case as far yeah. as they were concerned. Yeah. yeah. And they come back in. Did you think that they were going to find you guilty? I thought I was going home. I asked my attorney, so what do you think? He said, we got a 50-50 chance. After that, I figured I wasn't going home. I can't imagine the pressure of what that's like. I mean, I've only been in a civil trial myself, and even that's like when you're waiting for the jury verdict, and all that's at stake is money in that case, right? Not freedom, not your life. You're facing two 30-year sentences here. I don't understand how you could even, like, not collapse in a situation like that. You have to be a strong person. And if you've ever been in that situation before, how would you know? And especially back then, that was, say, 20 years ago. It's not like you could just get on Google and all of a sudden start researching best attorneys, best this, best that. They just had to go by what they knew, what attorney they knew, what family friend of this person, which they should have at that time. You know, looking back, probably should have just went with a public defender, somebody that had any idea. Tina, there were no good answers here, right? The public defenders, the odds were stacked against them. If I could just uh, wave a magic wand, I would put a law in that you have to be represented by a criminal defense lawyer. That would seem logical to me. If you have to go get surgery on your heart, they don't say, well, we don't have a guy available for that, but we do have a podiatrist, right? 
Oh, we, we, you know, we haven't, right? Like that doesn't. It, this is the only profession where that kind of stuff goes on. It's, it, it's. There's a lot of things that are unique about the legal profession in this country, but the system is not designed right. It's literally life or death in many cases, and and your case is not far from it. You know, it wasn't a murder, and you weren't facing the death penalty, but even in death penalty cases, we see crazy things go on. But in your case, it, they were literally playing with your life. Is there something that is interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals? If so, then BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who are specialists in issues including depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleeping, trauma, and more. Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. And remember, anything you share is confidential. Now you can get help on your own schedule, at your own pace, and your own time. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions and chat, text with your therapist. If you're not happy with your counselor also, remember this, you can request a new one at any time at no additional charge. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. And for Wrongful Conviction listeners, you can get 10% off your first month with discount code WRONGFUL. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com wrongful. That's betterhelp.com slash wrongful. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor that you'll love. Betterhelp.com slash wrongful. Anyone who knows me knows I wear glasses all the time. It's like a part of my face. And the thing is, it's so annoying going to a store and trying glasses on and going through that whole process. Warby Parker has solved the problem. I just participated in the home try-on program, and here's what happened. They sent me the glasses. I tried them on in my office, five different pairs. I showed them to my friends. I, you know, looking at other people. What do you think? This, that, the other thing. I look in the mirror. I picked the one that suited me the best. And then I sent back the other four. And here's the thing. The glasses, you're not going to believe this. They start at $95, including prescription lenses. I mean, that's a small fraction of what I'm used to paying. And the lenses include anti-glare and anti-scratch coatings, which is super important to me for obvious reasons. Anyway, the free home try-on program works like this. You order five pairs of glasses... And you try them on absolutely free for five days. You can show anyone. And then there's no obligation to buy. The shipping is free. It includes a prepaid return shipping label. So head to warbyparker.com conviction to take the quiz that comes before and then order your free home try-on. And now, introducing Scout by Warby Parker. And Scout is for you people, for everyone that wears contact lenses. And here's the thing, they're comfortable, they're breathable, and they're affordable. They're daily contact lenses. They're made from a super moist material that resists drying for lasting hydration and comfort. It's everything you want from a contact lens. Order a trial pack that includes six days worth of contacts for only $5. Unreal. And then receive $5 off your next Warby Parker order. Learn more go to warbyparker.com slash conviction. That's warbyparker.com slash conviction. Try it today. It's, the, the stakes were, were total because you're facing two 30-year sentences. So the jury comes back in. And can you paint a picture? Like, what was the sight, sound, smells? Was the courtroom full? Was your family there? What? The courtroom was full. My family was there. They came back and read the verdict. I dropped my head and I heard my family screaming. Yes. And that's all I can remember. 
I can't, you know, nobody has, as I think Tina was saying, nobody that hasn't been there could ever imagine what that's like. And then they take you away. Right. And now you're sentenced to two 30-year terms. Correct. What prison were you sent to? Was it maximum security? Cotton County Jail is where they sent me because the prisons were so full and they were renting out small jails for DOC inmates. Actually, the place where I started at is where I actually went home from after 16 Which years. Which is four hours away from where... I live now. Yeah, the crime happened. So you get sent to this jail, and people, I think, a lot of people think that jails are more benign than prisons, but a lot of them are extremely dangerous. And they also lack the facilities that prisons have, right? Because they're, they're only just designed to, to basically warehouse people. There's no, there's no, I mean, in a lot of jails, you don't get to go outside. There's no recreation of any sort, even the most rudimentary. So you were there, and then eventually you got transferred to? Granite, which is a high-medium security facility. During this time, you were seeking appeals. You were trying to find evidence that would exonerate you, right? How did that process take shape? And then we're going to get to what I really want to talk about, how you met Tina and how this beautiful love story started. But first, how did this thing start to turn your way? Unlike most of the people we've had on the show, you were not able to prove your innocence while you were in prison because they claimed to have lost the evidence, right? Right. Which we now know that was not the case. They just really weren't looking for it. Right. But, okay, let's leave that alone for a second. You ended up serving how much time? I did eight on the first 30 and paroled to the second one and did eight on the second 30 and paroled home. He contacted the Innocence Project back in nine. 96, and they had contacted Tulsa County, which is the county he was out of, and they had said that they had lost his evidence. Right. So you contacted us almost immediately. I actually contacted the Oklahoma Indigent Defense System, and they sent me to you guys. Right. What happens when someone like yourself contacts the Innocence Project is we review the, the letter. We try to find out whether, as best we can, whether there's some veracity to the claim of innocence, because not everybody that writes to us is innocent. Some people just like to waste our time. Because if you're guilty, the DNA is just going to prove that you're guilty. But anyway, so we review that. And then, of course, our next job is to find out if there is DNA that exists in the case. And as happens, unfortunately, in about 32% of the cases, we look for the evidence and we get told that it's lost or destroyed or whatever it is, and that's what happened in your case. Yeah, first I was told it was destroyed. Then they told me it was lost. Right, so they changed their story. That's a little bit of a red flag there. You serve out your sentence, but before you're finished, an interesting thing happens, right? You're in the last year of your sentence, and... You guys end up crossing paths. We did. Now, Tina, if you meet her, she looks more like a pop star, a movie star, than a prison guard. You know, it's sort of disarming. You were you were working as a daycare worker, and then you yes. trans, then you switched careers. Yes, because the early retirement, I could retire after 20 years, and then I can do my own job. But my son would have the stability at home. We would have just it had all the perks. A better pay and better, and better pay, health plan. and Insurance, 401ks, all of it, retirement. It had everything that I needed at that time in my life. Such an interesting transition to go from taking care of little children <laughs> to, to working in a prison, right? Sort of yes. a, a, almost an opposite. I really didn't enjoy it. After you get in and um, you realize it's not what people tell you, you start meeting individuals and hearing their stories, and you just get a little bit more compassionate towards people and realizing 
everybody's story is different. They're not just a number. Let's go back to how did you meet Cedric? Which part of the prison were you in? It was a minimum security. It was work release. He worked for the county, and my lieutenant had asked me to work late one evening. And I, of course, eager to do that. I, I worked late, and he came in from working at that facility. You could walk in, walk out, and he walked in the front door, and he was dirty and had been working all day, and he was really just polite and shy. I couldn't get him to talk to me. At that time, he was trying to avoid me at all costs because, well— you get in trouble that way. Yeah, I mean, well, uh, and you're yeah. on your way out. You're not we'll trying say to get his in. officers and his, uh, you know, for 16 years, officers had not been trustworthy people. Not that they're not trustworthy. It's just as an inmate, as an officer, you don't become friends. You keep that distance. So, um, well, it would also have been, you know, you would have lost your job or, or yes. worse, has anything. Yeah, and I was not my plan in any way, shape, or form to go in there and form any friendships with anyone. I still remember it, but we really didn't start talking until after that. They told me they would do everything they can to send me back to where I came from at the work release. And then she comes through the door. Hey, how you doing? Oh, I'm fine. <laughs> they, wait, wait, when you said they told you they wanted to send you back where you came from, what do you, can you elaborate on that? The, um, the warden of the facility told me that they was going to try to send me back to where I came from, back to a higher security. Why? Just he was just, just a mean just to son be of a, a bitch? Prick, yeah. Yeah, so you weren't trying to break any rules as you can almost see freedom at this point in time, right? Tina, you talk about how there was instant chemistry, right? For and me, you, yes. Yeah, for you. And what about you, Cedric? I mean, were I was you trying to go home? You were just trying to go home. So you weren't even <laughs> you weren't even picking up on those vibes yet. No. No, wow, that's interesting. And of course, you've been disconnected from you know this right, right. this life right. for sixteen years at this right. point, right? He would, still doesn't get my hints or my flirts, so I'm used to it. Well, <laughs> something could happen. You got kids. I mean, like, I, you must have picked up on it on some point. I mean, yeah. I'm not a, a specialist in, in family planning, but it seems to me something good went right. Um, he was out smoking a cigar in the dark, and then I made myself over there and told him to scoot over. I wanted to sit down and have a conversation. This is after he got out, No, obviously. this was during. Wait, 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 wait. So you were smoking a cigar in the prison? Outside. Outside. Oh, because you were on work release. Yeah. Yes. Right. So you see him, and now you're on work release, which means are you out? Not really. Not really. But you went up to him anyway. I did. And said what? Just try to make conversation with everybody that was sitting around, just trying to, you know, like, try to learn something about him because obviously you can see that he lifts weights, he's in shape, he plays basketball. He just seemed like a really friendly person. And I'm the type of person, like, I had never even had a speeding ticket. I had never even known anybody that had been to prison before. So this was all very new. And so this is out of character. Yeah, this was out, definitely out of character. Because you didn't know if he was innocent. You had no, no idea, right? For no all you know, this is, a, this is a dangerous guy. And I asked him a bazillion questions. I went through his chart, actually, and asked him questions, and he was honest on everything. Every single thing down to when his last visit was, who it was with, Everything was all very honest, and, and at that point, I was I was willing to, to get to know him a little more. So now comes the good stuff. Cedric, you're released, and then how long did it take for you guys to go on your first date? Two weeks. He called me immediately. As right. soon as he was released, he called me immediately, and it was, yes, it was that weekend. And was it, was it, was just like, it just clicked like that, or? Yeah. Yeah. So. Definitely. Amazing. That's so great. Thank you. 
In the fall of 2008, a sleepy Seattle suburb was shocked by a crime that no one could have expected. A local football star planned a daring bank robbery complete with decoys, disguises, and an outlandish getaway plan. He drew the whole thing up just like a game-winning play on the field and almost got away with it. The sneak follows a twisting story of a once great athlete who committed that crime and how the robbery forever changed the small town where it occurred. Be sure to subscribe to The Sneak on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. And then a romance blooms and you start dating. And then, almost like you're his lucky charm or the guardian angel, whatever the hell it might be, right? Then things get more interesting again because in an amazing twist of fate, it was a student, right? A law student. Correct. Who was working at the Innocence Project who decided for reasons we can't even speculate on one day to just call the Tulsa Police Department again when we'd already been shut down several times on trying to find the evidence, because now you're out, but you still got a very tough road ahead as a guy with a record, a felon. Work experience, last 16 years, nothing. Tough to to put that on your resume. So this law student who emerges as a real hero in this story, right, decides to knock on the door one more time, which would seem crazy. Like, why go, you've already been told it's gone. They told us it's lost, they told us it's destroyed. But but this kid, Chris the Law Student, if you're out there, Chris the Law Student, (laughs) so he calls up, and lo and behold, the evidence is found. In Texas. In Texas? What the fuck was it doing in Texas? (laughs) Nobody has any idea. How did they find it in Texas? That's a miracle. Yes, it is. Okay, so somebody steers them in the right direction. Somehow the dots connect. The evidence gets found. The evidence gets tested. And how did you find out the results? Who called you? You must have freaked out. Well, I was at work, and I was on parole, leg monitor for six months, and my parole officer called and said, some people from New York want your phone number. Can I give it to them? She said, they said they're from the Innocence Project. I said, will you please give it to him? So Chris called me and told me that he was the last one. And if he wouldn't have found it, I'd probably be lost. So what was your reaction when you heard the news? I was about as stunned as I was that I went to prison. Hurry up. DNA test it. Let's go. (laughs) And then how long did it take for them to test it and come back to you with the results? Not long. Not long. Couple weeks, couple weeks, and they came back. And then this is the moment I really want to get into. So w- when you got the call, did Chris call you again? Yes. So Chris, talk about a guardian angel. So Chris calls you. Where were you? Were you at work? Were you at home? Uh, I think I was at work. He was at work because I was at work. I was driving. I can remember the phone call. Because you probably got the first phone call after he got he, the phone call. He so me and he's like, okay, well, I need to tell you something. I was actually innocent and they have my evidence and he just kind of finally went into the story I never asked really did you did you break down did you jump for joy like did you just kind of just keep it moving what was your reaction kept it moving like I did when I went to prison I don't know what you were like before I didn't tell you back then but it almost seems like this experience sort of made you have a very almost by necessity have a very even tempered approach to life like you're not prone to highs and lows like you might have been. I think prison can take that out of you sometimes, too, for people to survive. They, they, they find they have to not react to situations the way people do on the outside. And that's one thing I pick up from hanging around and, and being with guys like yourself is, you know, you really learn to process information differently and then not let the little things in life 
get to you. And I, I try to take that approach because, I mean, if someone like you can go through what you've been through and then sit here and, and be calm and be positive and be moving on with your life, then what right does do we on the outside who haven't been through anything like this have to react or overreact to situations that are just everyday situations? I appreciate that. And it's one of the things I always get gratitude in my attitude from being around you and, and the other exonerees. So I appreciate that. So you called Tina. What was your reaction? I was ecstatic. I wanted to call my mother. <laughs> did you? Yes, I did. She was excited. We were, She didn't know either that he was innocent. It, it didn't matter if he was innocent or if he was guilty. It was just at that point I was in love with him for, you know, I was just in love with him. You were in love so with him was, as a person. It was great. Yeah. It was amazing. I was like, oh, my, he's going to get his name cleared. I was I was really excited, and I was, I was on the road. I was on the ball. I was like, let's get this thing going. I want to meet everybody and talk to everybody, and let's find out. I mean, I was— I had as much information. I had paperworks and paperworks of just looking up his history, like things that had happened during the trial, as much information on uh, present people that had just gotten out on wrongful convictions, you know, what to expect. I was trying to just do as much research as possible. on. So it was mitochondrial DNA testing, which is a, the field that applies to hair, that solved this, right? And that put things back in the right light and proved what you had been saying all along, which was that he was actually innocent. I'm sure working in the prison, you heard a lot of people's stories that they were innocent, and some are and some aren't. Yeah. And that's interesting, too, because we talked about how this forensic analyst falsely testified about the connection with the hairs to you, which, of course, sounds ridiculous when you talk about red hairs, but it happened, and it led to a very tragic outcome. And it's interesting because a study was conducted recently, and the reports were published widely. They studied hundreds of cases in which FBI analysts had testified on the basis of hair analysis. And they found that in 96% of those cases, they had lied or been mistaken. And what's really terrifying is that in every one of those cases, they were mistaken in favor of the prosecution. And I say mistaken, I mean, we don't know whether they were lying or they were mistaken. And that evidence is so powerful. And I hope that people are out there listening. When you serve on a jury, if you end up on a criminal trial, many people may not end up on a criminal trial as long as they live, but some people will. And it's easy to fall for that, right? When you have somebody basically almost coming up in a lab coat, like, yes. I'm a scientist, you know? <laughs> I went to this university. I went to that university. I was accredited by... And they sit there and go, oh, my God. I got, you know, like... But they make... They make mistakes. Everybody makes mistakes. Doctors make mistakes. Scientists make mistakes. People make mistakes. The fact is you have to really dig deeper and not just take a sort of a, an incurious approach. You have to be aware somebody's life is at stake. Your life was at stake. They were saying something that seemed ridiculous, but they were saying it with authority and with certainty. And they came with this scientific background and people, jurors, who meant well. Nobody, nobody, none of those jurors went on the jury hoping to convict an innocent guy. I'm sure they must feel terrible if they know. I believe that people, when they serve on a jury, they're looking for the truth. Yes. They want to help solve a crime. They want to help society. Nobody goes in there thinking, oh, great, today I'm going to get a chance to convict an innocent guy no. or woman. You have they don't the, want to go home feeling guilty that they made the wrong decision either. Oh, hell no. I mean, that would be a terrible responsibility to have to live with. But it happens. That one of the things that this show highlights is that it happens much more frequently than people realize. 
and you have to be aware and everyone has to do their part and, and be strong in your conviction. You know, there's so many cases we've seen where there's a jury room, it's 10 to 2 or it's 11 to 1 and finally the pressure builds and somebody's like, I, I got to go home too. I mean, I can't sit here any longer and you're holding somebody's life in your hands. You got to dig deep. You got to look for the truth. The good news is they found the DNA. You were proven innocent. It was sort of a miracle that DNA magically went from Oklahoma to Texas. So now you are in a position to sue the state, but they, they ended up settling with you. Is that right? Yes. yes. And right. then turns around and sued him for $100,000 for back for child support. For no, one, no one in the case and no one I was innocent. They, they, so they felt that you should have been paying child support while you were in prison making whatever it is, 16 cents an hour. Right? Something that he did not do. They, they proved him innocent and then took him to court and said for $100,000 and back child support. It's insane. The good news is you got your settlement, mm-hmm. which gave you the ability to really start your life again. And there's no amount that's adequate. I don't think no matter what you got or what any of the guys get. And, and unfortunately, a lot of guys get terribly little. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's some states where the most you can get is 25000 some states where you get nothing. Tina, so ultimately, this has taken now a miraculous turn. The evidence gets found, the, the state settles, and you start a family. You did. So tell me about that. My husband had wanted a daughter, actually wanted a child. He wanted a family whenever he got out of prison, obviously. Once I got home, had a girl. We named her after Kobe Bryant because he's a Lakers fan. So her name's Jacoby, and she's three. And about to be four. She's about to be four, and she's very spunky. We get asked often if she's adopted. She has a Britain accent. We don't know where it came from. <laughs> wow, that's pretty odd in Oklahoma. She was yes. talking about a fish out of water. Yeah, she's smart. She picks up on everything. Does she speak with an English accent all the time? Yes. All the time? Yes. Oh, my gosh. She has to get on television right away. And, I mean, is that – do people have trouble understanding her? They laugh mostly because they just can't believe what's coming out of her mouth. You know, when she starts talking, she drags out certain words, and she just comes up with things that we have no idea where she's heard them from. And I just think she's going to grow into it, and she's going to have this amazing little personality, be spunky and – that's all I can hope for, because otherwise we're going to have to move in a therapist and a preacher. <laughs> I'm just picturing this three-year-old who is named after Kobe Bryant, who speaks with an English accent. In <laughs> and case she's you... beautiful, to top it off. she is. I don't doubt oh, it. She I mean, is beyond it... beautiful. So she just smiles, and you're like, aw, she's so precious. And then that's so... about as far as it gets. <laughs> That's incredible. And then you have your son, and he, how's he dealing with all of this? He wants to be an officer when he grows up. He's, so, he's so laid back, and he'll sit back in his room for hours and play his games and sit on the couch, and he's laid back like me. Yeah, that sounds like, like that. Is. Yeah, he's sort of I don't a, know where she came from. So he's, he's got the chill factor, and the other one's got the, you Wow. Know. So before we have to wrap up, it's extraordinary. I mean, when I met you both, I was, of course, taken by the story. I've since met a number of other exonerees who ended up in relationships with women who worked in the prisons that they were in. So it's not unheard of, but it is unusual. And is there anything else that you'd like to share about this extraordinary journey that you're both on? Everybody always says, do not judge a book by its cover, but it literally means... Do not judge a book by its cover. Get to know somebody, anybody. Just get to know them a little bit, and it may turn into something a whole lot more. 
you may end up meeting the love of your life just by a simple conversation. Cedric, got anything to add to that? That's pretty good. That's pretty good. <laughs> so I guess the message there really is, and, and it's something I think about a lot, is really just keep your mind open. Yes. Don't judge. There's too much of that going on right now in this country. But I think there's, you know, there's the other side as well. I think that we're in a time where there's going to be a reaction and there's going to be more, more understanding and more, I'm hoping, more racial tolerance, more religious tolerance, more open-mindedness. And you're certainly a great example of that. And then look what happens, right? You know, again, just keep your eyes open. You never know. He may be not what you think. <laughs> you're Mr. Perfect or Mrs. Perfect. Because I definitely did not expect my future husband to be a tall, beautiful black man. I was expecting a country boy. I got something different, and that's great. I'm really thrilled for both of you. You know, I believe in miracles, and there's a lot of miracles in this story, and I wish you all the best, and I can't wait to hear what happens next. I guess with that, we'll be signing off. You've been listening to Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom and today's guests on the special Valentine's Day edition, Cedric and Tina Courtney. Don't forget to give us a fantastic review wherever you get your podcast. It really helps. And you know, I'm a proud donor to the Innocence Project, and I really hope you'll join me in supporting this very important cause, and in so doing, helping to prevent future wrongful convictions. It's easy. Go to innocenceproject.org to learn how to donate and get involved. I want to thank our amazing producers, engineers, and editors, Connor Hall and Kevin Wardis. The music in the show is by three-time Oscar-nominated composer, Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram, at Wrongful Conviction, and on Facebook, at Wrongful Conviction Podcast. Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom is a production of Lava for Good Podcasts in association with Signal Company Number 1 and PRX. I'm excited to tell you about a new serialized podcast called American Jihadi. If you're into investigative journalism, if you're a news junkie, or if you love great nonfiction storytelling, it's a must listen. American Jihadi tells the incredible true story of the unbelievable relationship between journalist Christoph Putzel and Omar Hamami. Throughout the eight-episode series, Christoph recounts his investigation into the life of Omar, an American-born U.S. citizen who became leader of the Somali Islamist militant group Al-Shabaab, landing him on the list of the FBI's most wanted terrorists. From Omar's hometown in Alabama to war-torn Somalia, Christoph seeks to get answers. Why would a Southern Baptist turn to terrorism? And how close should a journalist get to his source? Listen to American Jihadi, out now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.